Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Barb Higgins. She was a public school teacher and now is an athlete who helps people process grief through athletics. She hosts the podcast, A Thousand Tiny Steps, and she is a mother of four, two of which are in heaven. So she's got a lot to share about all of those topics and much more. So thank you so much, Barb, for being here today. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about your story? Well, first of all, Sarah, thank you for having me. And I want to give you a little shout out. I love your podcast. It's fantastic. So if this is your first episode listening, you need to listen to all of them because they're wonderful. Um, So I'm your classic quintessential baby boomer white woman that lives in northern New England. And uh, and you're sort of a very typical child in a very typical life in many ways. In other ways, my life is not typical at all. Um, So in my adult life, I have... um, I ran for Nike. I was a scholarship athlete there my freshman year at Boston University. Um, it was the first year the NCAA accepted women. So my full scholarship as an NCAA athlete was pretty history making as you know, with all my teammates. Um, after that, you know, after college, I ran for Nike for several years and then I returned to New, to New Hampshire um, and just began teaching public school where I had gone to school in this, my hometown, coaching cross country and track and really settling into, you know, your sort of typical American life, I guess, white picket fence type life. Um, I was married and divorced and then met Kenny. And in my marriage to Kenny, (laughs) we've had the best of times and the worst of times. That's the best way to sort of quickly describe it. We have four children together. We lost our first child at 25 weeks in the belly uh, to a pretty significant heart defect. Um, We were able to donate his body to Philadelphia Children's Hospital. Um, They have a wonderful neonatal cardiac care unit there. Um, and, and so they were able to learn a lot from his sweet little body and, and have been able to help several other babies. So as bad as that was, there was at least a positive outcome in it. Then I had Gracie and Molly in 2001 and 2003. And, uh, and I settled into raising two daughters. And so in 2016, after a, a, some significant events, I had a job loss. I had some you know, marriage troubles, things that we all go through. Uh, my daughter Molly died very suddenly. Um, she'd been having headaches. We took her to the emergency room in an ambulance because she was just not right. And we spent an entire day in the ER trying to convince them to please do some imaging. And a brain tumor ruptured in her head and killed her after 16 hours of sitting in one of those little emergency room rooms. So, of course, my life fell apart at that time in drastic ways. I don't think anyone that loses a child can handle that gracefully. At least I didn't. Um, but that's sort of when you know, I, I, I sort of look at it as the rumblings in my life, sort of the undertow of life, all the, all the upheaval you can't see on the surface really began. So I had several years right after her death where I was very, very dependent on alcohol. I was on tons of medication. I mean, you name it. And I took it to prevent panic and depression and anxiety and, you know, all of it. I I don't know how I even could function quite honestly. And, and, uh, in the years, in the months it took me to get off all those drugs, I have, developed an incredible respect for um, drug addicts that get clean because that was a painful time. And I was on all prescribed medicines, taking them as I was told. And it was an unbelievable um, journey, that part. So um, there was some drug use there. Our family fell apart. I stopped working. I really just did nothing. And then I started to have these strange dreams that I should have a baby. So keep in mind now, at this time, I'm probably 55. 
um, not exactly the age that women have babies. And so when I, when I look at who am I in society, when I look at women my age, we grew up, at the, we were the last vestige of girls can't do sports. You know, when I grew up and was little, girls didn't do anything. I didn't have softball or baseball or soccer or anything, swimming and some cross-country skiing. But, you know, it was just very different. Little girls did this and little boys did that. It was very different. Um, and so I always, always sort of stand firm in my assertion that just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I should be treated differently. And losing Molly in the way we did with her not being believed at the ER, um, so much of her mistreatment was around, she's a teenage girl, she's faking, she's too skinny, she's probably anorexic. You know, they had all these reasons why they didn't need to do any testing on her rather than just look inside her head to see if something was wrong. So we, we actually settled a major lawsuit with the hospital and life settled down a little bit. And around that time, I started having these very, very intense dreams that I should have a baby. So I thought, what the heck, you know, I'll just see if I can. And so I found this wonderful doctor, um, an Italian doctor named Vito Cardoni. Just this, he's about 70 years old. He walked real slow. He just was fantastic and thick accent. And um, so he had a clinic for women over 50. And so I went, and of course, I'm 55, which is a bit over 50. But we, you know, I'm fit. As, as devastating as the loss of Molly was, I never stopped working out. I never stopped going to the gym. I never stopped moving. It was the only time I felt sort of okay, which leads me to my new career. So um, so I, I started the process of trying to have this baby. And of course, I had to go off all those medications. And, and as I said, that was unbelievably difficult. In the process of going off those medications, um, part of what I was medicating myself for is a nerve condition in the head called trigeminal neuralgia. And it, my version of this disorder made me feel like I had a toothache all the time. Incredible pain in the face because the nerve fires is that the nerve center in the brain starts misfiring. So it, so it sends a message of pain. So they treat it with anti-seizure medication. So I don't have seizures. And so taking anti-seizure medicine pregnant. So he, you know, the doctor wouldn't even consider IVF until I was medication free. So in the process of that, I had to go off all the medicine. My face just began to hurt so much that I knew there was no way I could carry a baby without, with the pain. So I found an amazing surgeon in New York City, Imad Eskandar. None of my major doctors are American here. So <laughs> I don't know if it's a theme in my story, but I have the Italian doctor and the Turkish doctor and my local OB is Indian. So it's wonderful. I have all these different nationalities covering me. But I went there to New York City and he said, yes, I would, I would love to treat you. You need to get an MRI. And so I had the MRI to see if the way my nerve was damaged, he could fix. And it showed three brain tumors. So having lost Molly to a brain tumor, this was devastating news. Kenny at the time needed a kidney transplant. So he, and he was so very sick and poor Gracie, she'd lost her sister. Her father's, you know, on dialysis and sick. And now I have brain tumors. And this was her senior year of high school. And so it was just this really traumatic sort of tragic year. So Dr. Eskandar just jumped in with two feet and cut my head open and took out this giant brain tumor and took out the little ones on the other side and fixed my mouth. And it was about four months of back and forth to New York City, um, going to White Plains Hospital, Montefiore Medical Center for all of this treatment. When it was all said and done, um, and I was bald and scarred and recovering, um, Kenny um, received a kidney. Um, actually, his kidney donor is uh, young, was a young girl who was friends with Molly who died. They danced together, and we gave a lot of support to their family when their daughter was on life support. She ate peanuts in a restaurant and is allergic to them. 
and went into anaphylaxis and didn't recover. So we jumped in to help that family like people had helped us. And so they offered one of her kidneys to Kenny. So we have this unbelievable family two miles up the road. Um, when they miss Rachel, they come, they come visit Kenny. <laughs> um, so all of this was happening in the process of having this baby. And so when that was all said and done, I was given the okay um, to try to have this child. And so we went through the IVF process and it didn't work. And I thought, okay, that's it. I'm 56 now. He's not going to say yes. And he just knew that I could do it. And he just had faith in me. And, and I, I was so touched by the fact that he didn't just look at me as a crazy old baddie woman in her fifties. That's, you know, you know, oh, hot flashes again. You must be crazy. He really looked at me as a viable human being that had a lot to offer and that had a body that he thought could grow a baby. You know, like he didn't, he didn't look at my age and say, stop. He didn't look at Molly's death and, and say, stop. He didn't, he just accepted the fact that if I could take every step necessary successfully, then I could grow a baby. And so we tried again, we got through COVID and we had to put it off for a bit. And so in the summer of 2020, I, I had the IVF transfer on the 26th of July and I turned 57 on the 29th and found out I was pregnant August 5th and then began the process of growing Jack. So during that time, all of this is going on, all the stress of, and still missing Molly, the stress of Kenny's health, my own health issues. The one sort of saving factor for me was always working out and moving. Um, now I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm athletically, I'm athletic. I can do things relatively easily and with, with some good success. So it's a logical place for me to go. Um, and so all during the pregnancy, I, I never stopped working out weightlifting and running and rowing and all the things that you do in a CrossFit gym. Um, I just kept at it because it, it made me feel the most healthy. Um, Jack was due April 13th and, but he came about a month early. I developed preeclampsia and I don't like it when my body doesn't do what I tell it. <laughs> and so that was a pretty, that was a pretty difficult experience. Cause I was forced to, I had to go be admitted to the hospital and be induced and have Jack a month early, but he was the one push wonder. I had this amazing group of women. My, my OB wasn't available at the time he was on vacation. So I got upset. Like, how could you go on vacation? But he went on vacation early. Cause I wasn't due for another month. So he's like, I was doing you a favor. You know, it was just one of those things, but I had this amazing experience in the hospital delivering Jack. And so, you know, it was, I woke up and, you know, I went into the hospital Friday night. I woke up Saturday morning and I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not having a baby. Cause I didn't, I didn't get woken up in the night. So they can give you all the, you know, the medicine that you need, Pitocin and magnesium and all the things that induce labor through the, through an IV. So when the nurse came in, I'm drinking coffee and eating my breakfast. And she's like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, fine. Are we not having a baby? And she says, oh no, you're in labor. We've been in labor for about seven hours. I just didn't, I didn't feel it all that much. So I thought, okay, I best I should stop eating. <laughs> so um, Kenny Shook came to the hospital and we began, you know, that labor started to pick up and it was about two hours total from about 10 to 12, 30 minutes of, of, of like serious contractions and getting ready to push. And then one big push. Okay. I think we're ready to push. And I just did a big old CrossFit push and out he came. So he was teeny tiny, but healthy as can be. Um, I've been able to breastfeed him, which also to me is another shout out to women my age, you know, that, that our bodies can do a whole lot more than we think they can. Um, you know, we have medical technology and, and, and the, the wherewithal to do it facilities and doctors that are smart, that we can do these things for women that, you know, might not think, might think otherwise. Um, so Jack arrives now it's like, what have I done? <laughs> you know, I, I have this teeny tiny little baby and, and, and there's all, all this publicity and press around it, um, which was wonderful in terms of wanting to share the story, but also a lot of pressure. Like I have to, oh no, I have to be this perfect mother. Well, I don't have to be a perfect mother. 
I can be as imperfect as the rest of the mothers in the world are. You know, we all do the best we can. Um, so all through my life as an athletic coach and a track coach, I run a, I run a youth camp in the summer for kids and it's called Barb's Track Camp. And it's track and field, but it's mostly the first week of summer and you're finally out of school and let's use our bodies to feel good about ourselves. And so this, the year that Molly died, she died in May and track camp is in June. So I was a mess, but I still did the camp. And just being surrounded by young, healthy, active children, moving their bodies, finding happiness and running around, you know, all the community that comes with doing these activities together. It started to dawn on me that this was a really good way to sort of focus on managing not only my own grief, but maybe the grief of other people. If you can spend some time enjoying the body in which you live um, and helping it to cope with whatever's going on in your life, then all in all, everything will be better. And so I, I sort of began the quest of really utilizing it myself. I got my daughter Gracie involved in CrossFit and it, and it has been a lifesaver for her. And she's a, she's a dancer. Um, and so I'm in the process now. I, you know, I, I have a book that will be published in April or May around losing Molly and what that was like and the whole medical piece of Molly not being listened to. Um, and then I have the podcast and the blog. And really right now my podcast is just my life story. And I'm one of those people that I've, if you name something, I guarantee I've been through it or I've experienced it because someone I know has been through it. I, people look at me like, you cannot have gone through all these things. Well, yes, yes, I have. Um, and so I've just, I've, I'm on episode 75 now and I, all I'm doing is telling the story of my life um, and how, how all of the things that have happened to me sort of led to, in some ways, Molly's death and all that's come after it. Um, one of the hardest pieces for, in, for me in grief is um, feeling, I feel guilty if I'm happy because I feel like I'm forgetting Molly. And anyone that's listening that's lost a child or lost a sibling or lost a parent suddenly, and you have that first happy day and you think, oh my gosh, you know, you have this rush of guilt because you feel like you're forgetting them. And as a mother with a child, it's, I think it's magnified. But I also know that she's never coming back. And so I can either just forget about her and, and bury myself in grief or I can, you know, take all the, all the crap I've gone through and try to serve it up in a way that helps other people. So that's sort of where I am now. I have, you know, Kenny's retired, so he can provide a lot of support with Jack. Um, I, I coach at two different CrossFit gyms. I, I, and I'm trying to really connect in the, in the podcasting community. I have to say, there are so many amazing people that do podcasts and I've met and learned so many things just by listening to people like you and me talk about their life experiences. You know, it doesn't have to be a famous person, although those podcasts are fun to listen to as well. But, um, so I, what I like about it most is that I can listen to your podcast, for example, and it costs me nothing. It's a wonderful thing to listen to. I learn about people. I don't have to subscribe monetarily. You know, it's a wonderful way. I find the podcast industry a great way for everyone to benefit from what other people have to say, um, which I, which I, which I love. So that's like the short, quick version of the last six years of my life. <laughs> so now you just mentioned that Kenny is around to help with Jack because he's retired what was his response when you first were like, so I'm dreaming about having a baby. So I actually did a lot of the legwork before I told him, because if, if it was not going to happen, then, then how I shared the dream would be quite different. So I went to two or three different doctors. I had uh, a mammogram and a colonoscopy and all the medical tests you have to have. Like I, I spent several months sort of getting ready. And once I had sort of the go ahead, 
I put, sat him down and I said, so listen, I've been kind of busy. After Molly's death, we were, we were grieving. We all lived in the same house, but the three of us hardly, I could disappear for a day and nobody would know I was missing. It was, it was a, just a weird way of life. So it was easy to do all these things without him knowing. And so I just sat him down and I said, you know, you, if you don't want to be a part of it, you don't have to, but I, I'm, I can, I can, I've been approved to do IVF and have a baby. And I would love to, I said, I've, I've thought of a lot of different things, adopting an embryo, sperm and egg donors, trying to do it ourselves, you know, and, and all the testing that goes into all of those things. Um, and and we, we keep a lot of those details tucked away right now because it's Jack's reality, you know, and, and it's his biology and it's his story. So we don't, we don't share too many of the actual details of all the testing that we went through and all of that. But um, he really wanted to be a part of it. He, 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 he had like that blank stare for a little bit. And then he goes, I'm in, I'm all in, let's do this. And so I said, great, because we're going to Boston today to meet the doctor <laughs> and get in the car. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was just really, it was just sort of like that. And, um, and he's been on board the whole time. I mean, he's been terrific. Um, you know, we had your typical family backlash. His daughter was none too, he has a daughter from a previous marriage and she wasn't too happy. Um, it took Gracie a while to re- come around. She was mostly afraid that I would get sick or hurt, like something bad would happen, you know, like, and, uh, but you know, now well, once a baby arrives, <laughs> nobody can hate a baby. <laughs> and how has it been raising a baby now at an older age compared to when you first had two little ones? So my biggest answer to that is right. I don't really care anymore. Like the thing, let, let me rephrase that. I was so worried about how I looked and what people thought. And was I parenting correctly? Did they have all the right toys? And did I sign them up for the best preschool? Like all, all the things that you worry about or I worried about in my 30s when I was having them. And I was an older mother then, 38 and 40 with those two. You know, most of my friends already had their babies five or six years prior. But you have everything going on. I was in the middle of teaching and coaching. We owed a ton of money on our house still. Kenny had a full-time job. My mother was my childcare. Up early in the morning, off to work. Like, my life was just frenetic. And so everything was sort of high stress as a, as a, I know I'm, I mean, I have a lot going on, but this morning I was tired. So I slept in, like, I don't have to be anywhere. You know what I mean? Like I don't schedule anything in the morning because I don't want to have to worry about it. So in that regard, it's a lot easier. Our days can flow. Now we can waste a lot of time. So there's that, but the other piece is, um, I don't worry so much about, is he eating everything he should eat? Is he, you know, oh no, he has a booger. He might be sick. You know, oh no, he, he, he knows the word fuck. Oh no. You know, like he knows that word. He articulates it well, but I worried about everything with Gracie and Molly. And now I'm just like, you know what? Gracie's fine. She's 21 and she no longer only eats food that are yellow and, and she, and she drinks more than milk and she, you know, can go to sleep by herself. Like all the things that kids grow into doing and parents worry about so much. And I just don't, I don't care. So there's that part of it. The other part is, um, you know, I, I'm a public educator. I'm on a school board. I work in an online charter school. I coach at a CrossFit gym. And so, and so I'm out and about in the community a lot. And the transgender community just has my heart. Um, I, have my, I have two or three people in my life close that are, that are trans. And, and I love the effort and the hard work they put into being themselves and how hard it is for them because they live in a world that is very narrow in thinking, you know, it's, it's male or female, that's it. And, and so in raising Jack, 
I am so much more neutral than I was with Gracie and Molly around everything, colors and clothing and toys. And so we made a mission not to buy anything new because there's enough plastic in the world. So everything that Jack has had has belonged to someone else. So he has a little pink kitchen. Now, Kenny cooks all the meals in my house. Chefs are, are just as often men as they are women. So why wouldn't a little boy have a kitchen? But the feedback I get sometimes is, where'd you get that? I'm like, oh, my neighbor across the street, it was Brooke's kitchen. And he loves it. What do I care what color it is? Why does a color have to be male or female? And so, and he's got these beautiful curls and lots of people say your daughter's beautiful. I'm like, thank you. What do I care? Boy, girl, it's a baby. They're beautiful. So I find I am trying very hard to create um, a reality for Jack that acknowledges the fact that some people are very solidly male, some are very female, and some are in all of that area in between. And that's humanity. So that if that if he ends up wanting to be a they or a she, that he feels free to be that way. I just want him to always have all of that freedom. So that's something I work very hard at. And it's because I have these close families in my life that have children that grew up with Gracie and Molly that, you know, life isn't easy for them. So I can't make it easy for Jack, but I can teach him that the world that we live in is far different than the world Gracie lived in 20 years ago and is far different than the world that I lived in 30 years before that. So that, that would be my big, my answer to the, how is it different question? <laughs> yes. Now you mentioned, you know, kind of the initial guilt that you might've felt in moments of happiness after um, Molly passed away. So what is it kind of like nowadays, you know, you've got a baby in the house and you have a 21 year old um, and you have these stories of loss. What is kind of the general emotional and sort of like conversation around those things? So all three of us, Gracie and Gracie, I think struggles the most because Molly and she were really, really close. That was her person. They were almost like twins. And all of us agree that having Jack around distracts us with joy. Like he's such a love. He's funny. He's yummy. He's delicious. He's so unabashedly excited to see us all. You know, it's like, like puppies are that way. Like, yay. So when the door opens, Jack will say sissy and he'll run around to see her. He calls her sissy. Um, so we, we just have a lot more joy. Our house is just a much more noisy, cluttery, uplifting, happy place. That's the good piece. The other piece is I feel, I feel that we're spiritual beings living in a, in a physical world. So I feel that heaven is right here, that all of our loved ones, anyone that's ever lived inside a body, whatever that entity is, whether it's a soul or energy or what, is all right here. And so I have reassurance in that. And Jack is unbelievably connected to Molly. Any picture, he knows right away pictures of Molly. Sometimes he'll just, when he wakes up in the morning, sometimes the first thing he'll say is, hi, Molly. You know, and we'll all be like, oh, you know, we'll look around like, where's Molly? You know, what, what picture is he seeing? What is, what's going on with him? So he gives us license to talk about Molly as one of his siblings. And it's really normal conversation. This was Molly's doll. We still have Molly's dance costumes hanging in the front hall where she put them in April of 2016. We've put away a lot of things, but the dance costumes, we just don't have the heart to move. And every time he walks by, hi, Molly. And he'll say to her, say hi to her dance costumes. And, you know, there's nothing sad about it. Um, sometimes when I'm having a hard day and I'll say, you know, I miss Molly. Um, you know, all of our sadness, of course, is still there. But he provides, a, I feel like he provides a connection to her and a distraction from 
the sadness of losing her. And it's, it's hard. And, you know, rainbow babies are that way. I'm in a lot of grief groups. And when you have a baby after you've lost a baby, they're called rainbow babies. So Gracie was my rainbow baby after losing Gordy. And Jack is my rainbow baby after losing Molly. And both Gracie and Jack provided much needed sort of distraction and focus in tough times. So, you know, it makes me feel, it makes my happiness more focused as well. I don't know if that makes sense. It's just one of those, it's, you feel like you're straddling a picket fence. You know, you've got one foot on one side and one foot on the other and, and neither side feels right. And standing on top of a picket fence doesn't feel right. So, you know, it's just like, what do I do? <laughs> That's sometimes how it feels, you know, to be a grieving mother and still have children to raise and try to create a quote unquote normal life. Tricky. Yeah, and I, and I think that explanation does make sense. Now, can you talk a little bit about the grief and processing all of that through working out and kind of what you're doing in that space? So, one of the biggest things that's come um, in research, you know, we think of mental illness as behaviors people somehow choose. Well, if you just stop drinking, well, if you would just try to be happy. And we, and we generate symptoms into choice. You know, we would never tell a cancer patient, you know, if you stop growing tumors, you might get better. But we do. We don't say those things. to, But we do say those things to addicts and to people who are depressed and all this. So with all the brain research going on, and specifically around trauma, and grief is a, is a form of trauma. Um, it's a traumatic incident in the brain. They're just learning that that the brain responds in many different ways. And one of the best ways to soothe an, an, uh, a troubled brain is through movement. Think of a baby rocking back and forth. Think, think of any time that you're upset, you pace, you pace, you, you walk back and forth, or, you, or you, your knee bounces up and down, or you bite your nails. Like we, we, we take on these physical movements to combat anxiety. So using, using the movement as sort of a, okay, you're, you're, feeling, you're having a hard time, let's go for a walk, that sort of thing. Um, the other piece is it's often difficult for people to sit still, like, you know, oh, go do yoga. In yoga, you have to sit still and be quiet, which can be impossible um, for a lot of people. Um, not that yoga isn't very good. I've actually just started it and I'm enjoying it, but it's a lot of effort. So for me personally, as a young child, I had a pretty abusive childhood. And, um, and the way that I felt better was to ride my bike, to just get outside and ride my bike. And I was asthmatic, so I wheezed a lot. And so I had to, I had to, you know, figure out how to do things without having these big asthma attacks. I enjoyed skiing. So anytime I could go skiing, I would go skiing. And always when I was flying down a mountain or riding a bike, you know, up a hill or climbing a tree or anything, anything, I always felt safest and most comfortable moving around. And in my adult life, it's been that way. If I, if I meditate, I get on a rowing machine or in the years I was a runner, I remember one time I got lost in my thoughts. And when I woke up, I was like 16 miles away from my house. Like I had run 16 miles, ended up in two towns over. I'm like, how did I get here? And I had to get a police officer to drive me back. <laughs> it was, it was pretty funny. Um, so for me, movement is always, has always um, sort of created uh, calm and peace and relaxation for me. So when looking at children in school now and post COVID stress and all you know, our children are really struggling right now. My focus now is really utilizing movement for young people to, to be able to, even if they can't find joy through it, to alleviate grief. So Molly's foundation, Molly was in theater and dance. And so we, we send a lot of students to theater and dance camps and lessons and things because 
you get to you get to be somebody else in a player. You get to you know dance and listen to music, and we do musical instrument lessons, and we buy instruments for kids. Just any way that they can express themselves that doesn't require explaining how I feel or or spending time focusing on what's wrong. Get lost in a song. Get lost in a dance. Get lost on a run. Get lost, you know, swimming or whatever it is that that you do. And so. So my focus in really dealing with a pretty traumatized population right now in terms of COVID recovery um, and just, you know, in all of my grief groups, um, grief walks, grief, you know, grief hikes, where you get groups of people together. Let's just go for a walk together and you get 20 people on a walk. And, you know, an hour later, everyone's feeling way better. And, and that would be hard to replicate in a coffee shop or in a Zoom call. So, you know, I, I don't have a scientific explanation for it all. I just know for me, when I get my my body moving, I feel better, and it and it opens up pathways for communication. So I'm just you know trying to build a practice around teaching moms and dads to do that with their kids, um, getting kids out of their desks at school to move around and to process information, that sort of thing. And do you think that Jack will be athletic like you were as a kid? Based on what I've seen so far, now he's almost two and he's a little. Right now, a very classic little boy. Molly and Gracie would look at things and play with things. And Jack just wants to know if he can eat it, s- shove it up his nose, or jump off it. You know, like like nothing is passive for him. Um, he walked really young before he was one. He's very agile. Um, I- I'll enroll him in dance because I just think music and movement to music is just so therapeutic. And we're, we're a traumatized family. He's growing up in a house with a lot of trauma. And so... As, as hard as I'll try to give him a normal life, I am who I am, you know, bruised, but not broken, but bruised nonetheless, you know? And um, so I'm hoping that he can utilize movement to be happy. He has a pair of ice skates. Um, a good friend of ours has two daughters and he wanted a son desperately. So Jack is his little adopted boy. So they're going to go, he's going to learn how to skate in his little hockey skates. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll sign him up for a lot of things just so that he's active, but he gets to choose. You know, I was a distance runner and everyone's like, oh, are your daughter's going to run. Neither of them ran. It wasn't their thing. You know, so that's fine. You know, he doesn't. But but do I think he'll be athletic? I think he will be active and will spend a lot of time outdoors and moving around. Yes. <laughs> yes, you are. You are prepared for whatever comes at you, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, you have to be. <laughs> I've had a lot come at me, so you couldn't throw too much at me that I wouldn't be surprised or unable to handle, which is a blessing and a curse, I guess. <laughs> yes. Well, and so you shared the story of the brain tumors. Are you at this point, like, fully pain-free? Do you have to go through checkups or anything? Like, where where are you on your personal health journey? So I'm, I'm the tumors, fortunately, were, were benign tumors. They were meningiomas, which I was told a class one meningioma is the perfect kind of brain tumor to have if you have to have a brain tumor. I also was told that 75% of humans have them and they live their whole lives and they never cause any problems. It's like a cyst or a pimple or, but it's inside there. Um, so I, there's still, you know, they can't remove an entire tumor cause you can't cut into brain tissue. So I still have like the remnants of the big one. Um, and, uh, and the little ones they blasted to make even smaller, but the little remnants are in there, but I'm fine. I never had any symptoms with these brain tumors. I, I had the MRI to fix my mouth and my mouth condition had nothing to do with the tumors. My mouth condition, the nerve was on the right side of my head and my big giant brain tumor was on the left side of my head. 
So the, the symptoms I have now are sort of concussion syndrome symptoms. When you have your head cut open twice, you know, and things moved around in there, you know, it, it takes a long time to get better. So I have some proprioception issues. Like if it's pitch dark, I have to think for a minute before I can move. Like I get sort of temporarily paralyzed. Um, that's better and better. And, and my balance was tricky for a long time. Um, but no, I'm, I'm as healthy as can be. I don't have any, I have no lasting effects. I have to have an MRI once a year. I just had it actually, and everything was fine. Um, so no, I'm, I'm good. And Kenny's kidney is wonderful. He's super healthy. Um, you know, it's funny, poor Gracie and Molly grew up with Kenny being sick and I, you know, we prepared them for him being sick and ill and that he had a very serious illness. And then Molly died, you know, and then I got the brain tumors and Kenny was like <laughs> third row back. Um, but he's, you know, it was just, but he's, you know, super healthy. And um, the little girl he got the kidney from um, danced in Molly's funeral. Molly's funeral was a big variety show. And the opening number was a big dance number that Molly had danced in. Um, so she wasn't in it, of course, but everyone else was. And Rachel was in the dance that year. Um, she was 18 the year Molly died. So, you know, I often say the kidney that danced in Molly's funeral now lives in Molly's dad. So we have all these weird, weird things that have happened to us um, that make the horrifying parts of this journey more palatable because so many amazing coincidences and things have happened in the wake of it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it's good to hear that you're both doing so well health-wise. Um, and you mentioned earlier about how because of, you know, like the brain tumors, having a child at an older age, the child lost all of that, that kind of like became news and you were like, you know, I have to be like the perfect mom and like people were, you know, knew your story. So what has your story kind of taking off like been like? Um, my story from all the news publications and things. Mm -hmm. So, um, the biggest thing I guess is I've, I've had lots and lots of connections from people I don't know, um, either reaching out to say, thank you, thank you, or reaching out for, to ask questions and for support, which is wonderful. I don't ever, ever ignore a message because I feel like if they took the time to write, then I should answer. The other piece was, um, so I went to Montefiore Medical Center to have the, you know, the brain tumor surgery and everything. And after that surgery, they did a special, a little special. They came up and did some pictures and I was on a couple of billboards near the hospital on a stage. And it was all about how, you know, finding the brain tumors after losing Molly was a new lease on life and all of this. And so when I got pregnant, I let them know, I let the hospital know. I called them up and said, Hey, by the way, it worked. I'm pregnant. And so the the people that did the, that do the, all the marketing for the hospital, it's Chromista television called. And they said, would you be willing to do a commercial for the hospital? And so I said, of course. So I, they flew us to Moab, Utah, to this beautiful Canyon. And we filmed there for five days, this beautiful television commercial that aired in New York city. The TV commercial still airs. Um, but, but I was on like 50 billboards. I think a lot of the billboards are still up. And there was a 33 story picture of Jack and I, in Madison Square on the side of a building. When you come out of Penn Station in New York, it was right there. So that was a ridiculously huge thing to happen. Um, and that generated a lot of feedback, you know, positive and negative, but that's, you know, that's fine. That, that generates conversation. I don't, people don't have to agree with my choices or me to have valid thoughts 
or to be respected by me because we all, we all are who we are. Um, and we all bring into our experiences where we came from. And so, so for Jack, I feel like it gives him sort of a nice beginning, you know, that, that when he's older and he can look back on all of this, he'll just be like, wow. Um, I was actually at the gym last night, my local gym in Concord, New Hampshire here. And there was a visitor from Livingston, New Jersey. And we got chatting away, chatting away. And he also vacations in South Jersey. So we had all these connections about, you know, vacationing in South Jersey and just New Jersey in general and all this. And so I just said, Hey, have you ever seen a picture of a lady on a billboard with a baby in a backpack? And he goes, Oh yeah, she, that we watched that. There's a commercial, but do you know her? You know? And I'm like, I am her. And so, you know, he was just this guy from New Jersey who dropped into our gym because he's on business up here. So we ended up talking for like an hour and his wife had some health issues and they just connected to the commercial and they, they love it. And they, he goes, we actually recorded the commercial and oh my gosh, I can't, you know, it was just this wonderful. So it's, it's meetings like that where it's more than just a commercial on TV. It's, it's somebody who had a struggle that connected to my struggle and found comfort and solace in it. So do I want to cap capitalize on that? Yeah, not necessarily financially. I really feel like if I have some credibility and have a voice for either older women or bereaved mothers or women who have had fertility issues or women that have had cancer, you know, and tumors and all of that, if I can be of a support or share my story and that opens the door for someone else, that's amazing. So I'm really trying to build, build my online presence for that. I, I have a weird relationship with money. And so what I really love about podcasting is it's free. Anyone can listen. You don't have to be important or special to listen to Barb talk on about her life. <laughs> and so, you know, you share your story, but what sort of advice would you give to people in any sort of similar situation that you went through, whether it was the tumors or the loss of a child? What advice would you give? I think my first advice, if anything related to the medical field, is to be persistent and be firm and don't accept answers that you aren't comfortable with. I have to remind, I was a waitress and we were taught that the customer was always right. So when you go to visit a doctor, you're the customer and, and the doctor is there making good money on your insurance payments. I mean, I know they have insurance too, but my feeling, my advice to parents or to anybody would be, if you don't like what you hear, keep asking questions, trust your gut, find a doctor that, you know, respects you and is listening to you and isn't, and isn't telling you what they think you need to hear. And that, that's a hard, I, I have no ill will toward the medical profession. Doctors are under incredible pressure. I would, the medical field right now is the highest pressure place ever. And, and so I know that, you know, they do most 99.9% .9 of doctors do the best they can, but it, it is, if I had been more persistent and asked more questions in the Molly piece, things very well could have been different. Her tumor was not cancerous or deadly. It shouldn't have killed her. But, you know, you you just sort of, okay, I'll do that. Okay, I'll do that. And things don't sit right. Um, and so I, I didn't push for a lot. Um, the IVF piece, I just found a doctor that looked at me as a human being and not as an age. I wasn't some 55-year-old to him. So my biggest advice is to stand firm in who you are, that you matter and you, you have value. And if you have a question that you don't feel is being answered, find someone that can answer your question for you and don't feel apologetic or bad about that. Right. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? Um, 
you know, I, I think I've shared a ton. <laughs> you know, I, I have, I do have one of those crazy, crazy lives. I guess, I guess the biggest thing is finally where as a, as a female who was often taught to be polite and quiet, um, I've, I kept a lot of things to myself growing up, you know, things that I should never have kept to myself. And, and I guess if I had anything to share, especially with women listeners, but, but not just female listeners, anybody, anyone that doesn't feel they have a voice, it doesn't matter how ugly it is or how embarrassing you feel it is. If it's part of your story and sharing it will help you feel better. Don't be afraid to share yourselves. Like, like, I guess that's my biggest, my biggest thing in all, in my whole journey is look, this is who I am. Love me or love it or hate it. This is who I am. And I think, I think everything that's happened to me can be used to help other people and, and things that have happened to you are helpful to me. It's that's a two way street. So, you know, I guess, I guess everything I've gone through can either be horrible or great. It depends on what I do with it. And so I guess I'm trying to make it great. <laughs> yeah. It seems like, you know, you're very much doing good with it and, you know, kind of pushing out, you know, your story and, and sharing for, for others to hear and, and to relate. And that's, that's important. Yeah. Absolutely. Now at the end of all my episodes, I do ask all my guests a random question. So my question for you today is, would you rather explore space or the deepest part of the ocean? Oh, space. Absolutely. <laughs> I am wicked claustrophobic. <laughs> so, so if something were to go wrong, I think I'd rather float around in space until my oxygen ran out than be trapped underwater with a giant shark swimming towards me or something. Yeah. And I, I think I would like the view from space better. <laughs> All right. That brings this episode to a close. So of course I will be leaving great links for Barb in the description. So her website, a thousand tiny that will bring you to her blog and her podcast. If you want to check that out, you'd also like to check out the foundation that she's got going on. That website is mollybfoundation.org. So that will be there as well. And if you'd like to connect with Barb on social media, her public Facebook page and her Instagram will be there as well. So feel free to go check all of that out and connect with her. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. That brings you to all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, along with all of the past episodes, past resources, past social media, all of those good things. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can reach out to me via email. I always look forward to hearing new stories. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is an option to do that with the link in the description. So thank you so much, Barb, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.